Hey everyone, this is Anthony Fleming, Senior Pastor of Church Alive, praying that this message is fresh, real and powerful in your mind, your heart, your family, every part of your life. If you enjoy these messages, subscribe to it, share it with a friend to build their faith. God bless you as you lean in to the power and presence of God's Word. So when I say the word to you, brand, I wonder what the first thing is that pops into your head. You're probably thinking of maybe a clothing company, or maybe you're thinking of a food, maybe you're thinking of a car company or something like that. But when I say the word brand, very often you you start to think about the couple things that probably you like, right? And what we don't realize is that branding, it is powerful, but it is also extremely intentional. A recent thing that I read, a recent statistic says that the average person is exposed to up to 6,000 forms of advertising a day. 6,000. That is while you're on your social media. That's while, while you're watching news sites. That's while you're just browsing other internet websites as well. That's while you're looking at your email. That's while you're driving in your car, reading a newspaper, reading a magazine. All of these different avenues that advertisers have. And I think that they've accomplished their goal pretty well, right? I want to show you a couple brand marks and I want to see what's the first thing that you think of. Let's show them the first one. Look at that. It's a black and white swoosh. And every, most people go Nike. But you know what the thing is? For many people, when you see this picture, you might think the word Nike, but how many of you just immediately thought of shoes? Right? Okay, so my answer, right? What's the next one? Come on. Look at that. But look at it. It's the shape. It's the color. It's the picture. But when I see this thing, I might think of the word Starbucks, but you know what else I'm thinking about? Lattes. Look at you guys are on point this morning, right? Shoes, lattes. And that's the power of a brand, right? It's because when you look at this thing, you look kind of past the name of it almost and you look at what it represents. It has intrinsic value. Just even in the picture, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But how many of you know that there's brand names that are really well known, really strong brands, but then there's the knockoff brands, right? And I'm not just talking about the ones that look like the same exact thing. I'm talking about the, the knockoffs. Let's look at this one. We've got Sharpie on top, and we've got Sharpay on the bottom. <laughs> Why does Sharpay want to look, feel, and smell the exact same way as Sharpie? Because they know the strength of the name, the brand, Sharpie. And how many of you know that if you've ever been at a flea market and you've purchased some Daracel batteries, you don't know what you're going to get. The word brand is actually from the old Norse word brander, and it means to burn. And the practice of branding back in history looks a little bit different than what you and I would call it today. We have evidence from up to 4,000 years ago in ancient Egypt that cattle were branded to show ownership and to show where they belonged. From 2,500 to 3,500 years ago in ancient Greece, when they made pottery, they put marks on it. And those marks would indicate the origin of the material, where the pottery was made, and even the artisan. 
Back up into about the 1500s, the practice of branding cattle came to the Americas, first in Mexico, and then by the 1800s, branding cattle was just what you did in the southern United States. But up until even that point in time, the whole point of marking something or branding it was really just to kind of show ownership. It was really to track the things. It had nothing to do with the quality. It had nothing to do with really what that product, in essence, was giving you, right? The United States changed that in the year 1870. In the year 1870, the United States passed the Trademark Act. And what the Trademark Act did was it took something that used to be an external symbol, something that was merely a marking, and now it turned it into intellectual property. So now words, phrases, colors, shapes, pictures, all of those things could be trademarked to be representative of your product. So now something that used to be external now represented the product as a whole. And what does a brand, what does a trademark really convey to you? It conveys the quality. It conveys the consistency, the enjoyment, the selling power, right? You look at some of those pictures that I showed you before and you just automatically know what I'm talking about. That's the reason why you see 6,000 ads a day. It's not to get you to buy the thing the one time, it's to make you think that the only place to get a good latte is Starbucks and the only place to get good shoes is Nike. And it's very, they're very, everyone's quiet because you're thinking about this. It is very successful the way that modern marketing is and it's all because of that change. There's power in a name. There is power in a name. There is power in a brand. There is power in a trademark. Those things carry weight with them. And actually, in ancient Israel culture, we see that they understood the value of a name. And very often, if you read in the Old Testament, children were named after the circumstances surrounding their birth. So maybe they were named after something that was going on in culture at the time. Maybe they were named after the moment of their birth. Maybe something happened that caused the parent to look at the circumstances and give a name to the child. But we see not only are children named after circumstance, but we see many times throughout Scripture that names are changed. We see in the Old Testament, Abraham's wife, her name was Sarai. And her original name, Sarai, it meant quarrelsome. It meant one that would contend with you, one that would fight with you, right? Her name was changed by God to be Sarah, which means princess. And if there's any Sarahs in here, now you know. <laughs> Jacob in the Old Testament, his name meant supplanter, one who wants to take the place and the right of someone else. And God came and had an interaction with him, and he changed his name to Israel, which means having power with God. And when God changed Jacob's name, it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't just because he was sick and tired of his name. It wasn't like all of a sudden, H, your name is now G. <laughs> H is Italo, my man over here, played on our worship team years and years ago. He's up for a visit from South Jersey. Welcome back, H, not G. <laughs> but God changes the name for a reason. And in scripture, when God changes a name, it comes with a purpose and it comes with a promise attached to it very often. You look at Genesis 35, 10 to 12, it says, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. To you and I will give the land to your offspring 
after you. So name had to change from supplanter to one who has power with God. Why? Because God had something for him to do. God had something in store for him, right? And even in the New Testament, we look at a man named Simon. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. But the name Simon means one who hears. And that doesn't mean that he's not deaf. (laughs) One who hears means one who listens to everything that everyone has to say. And by extension, one that'll just float around and just be influenced by everything that's going on around him. And what does Jesus do? He changes his name to what? Simon Peter. Simon Cephas in the Greek. It is a rock. So he changes from someone who is easily blown in any single direction by any single thing to something that is firm, immovable. Why? Because Jesus knew he would play a pivotal role in the founding of the church. And he could not have, Simon could not afford to be influenced by the people that are around him. He needed to lean on the firm foundation of who Jesus was. A name is always changed for a reason. A name is changed because it no longer accurately represents the person that it is attached to. God needs to change identity sometimes because it has labeled people and it has influenced people and it restricts people from doing what God has in store for them to do. God needs to change and shift destiny and he can't allow a name to be something that would restrict people to cause their vision of themselves and what they can accomplish to be limited because God is unlimited and he is not bound by anything. So God needs to change things sometimes to get people to step into the destiny that he created them to walk in. But if I were to ask you this morning, what brands you? What is your trademark? What would you say? What are the things, the words, the phrases, the roles, the places? What are the things that define you the most? For some people, hopefully you, you, you give me some of the roles that you have. That's usually how we start to get to know each other, right? When you first meet somebody. So what are some of the things that I would consider myself? I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm quasi-Brazilian. <laughs> Listen, I make really good rice. I can kind of speak Portuguese. And when I was in Brazil, I hurt myself and I had to go to a medical clinic. And I have paperwork from Brazil that says I'm from a Brazilian state called Goiânia or Goiás, Right? And that's only because they couldn't figure out how to put New Jersey in. I don't care. It counts. I'm Brazilian. So, son, brother, servant, scientist. These are all things that I would call myself. But maybe there's other things that you would attribute to yourself. Like you're active. You're successful. You're timely. You're generous. These are things that we would like to be known by or maybe we would call ourselves. But for most of us deep down, if you were really going to be honest with me, how often are those nice, happy, positive things the first thing that you think about on the inside? Because when I asked you, what do you think your trademark is? I wonder how many of us still think about the negative. Maybe some of the things that would pop up that would be a trademark that you'd think about might be broken, ugly, guilty, damaged goods, dumb, failure, unlovable, unwanted, foolish, naive, abused, abuser, alcoholic, womanizer, addict, unstable. And it's really quiet in here because most of us have pain associated with something like that or some extension of that list. And far too often, 
The negative things that you and I have been through and the negative things that have been spoken over us, those are our brands. And those are our trademarks. And those are the things that deep down on the inside, people don't see, but they see the fruit of. Remember, a brand used to be something that was just external, and then it became something that represented the thing as a whole. So often, you and I have been through negative experiences that have hurt, that have fundamentally shifted the people that we are, but people don't see that on the outside. They see the fruit of what it is on the inside, right? And it's so often, isn't it crazy? You could have had something incredible happen in 2019, and yet it's so much harder to remember that thing than the terrible night that you had in 2006. Why? It's because the negative always seems to be bigger than the positive. It is the, seems to be the way that we are wired. And it is things that are hurtful, that are harmful. They seem to rewire, we rewire us. These things are not just scars on the outside, but internal scars that people can't see. And isn't it crazy that regardless of how much progress we've made in our life and in certain areas and how much breakthrough we've seen, we still default sometimes to those couple areas that we still haven't seen something change in. There's many times in scripture that a name is changed. There's many times that this happens and either God initiates the change or sometimes it's even people changing names. But there's one example that I want to look at today that does not follow that pattern exactly. And First and Second Chronicles are two books out of the Old Testament. They were originally written as one by a, an author that they call the Chronicler, which I think is really cool because it just sounds like a Christian comic book, doesn't it? The Chronicler. Most people think it was the prophet Ezra. But what had happened was Israel had come into the promised land and then went out into exile. And as they were returning, the author of Chronicles, the chronicler, looked at the culture and said, I need to remind you all of who you are. You're coming back into your homeland. You're coming back into your promise. We can't forget what we've come out of and where we've come from. And so what happens is in First Chronicles, we start to see it starts with genealogies. It starts saying all of the family members in certain families lines. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, it, it talks about the clan, the tribe of Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Israel. Judah is the family line that gave us King David and gave us Jesus later on. But in the lineage of Judah, in the descendants of Judah, we see this incredible passage. 1 Chronicles 4, 9 to 10 says this, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers and his mother called his name Jabez saying, because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. His name was given in a moment of pain. His name was inspired by the negative. His name was inspired and defined by a, a passing moment of someone's life that was difficult. And yet that was the label that had been put on him his entire life. But what we see in this scripture is that he refused to allow the limitations that his name placed on him be where he stayed. And what he did was in the environment of prayer, he began to shift and look at the person of who God is and allow the person of who God is to tell him what he should be. Yeah. 
It is in the environment of prayer that those things shift in our world. It is not something that we can just decide is going to change. How many times have you decided you wanted to change something and yet sometimes it seems like you haven't managed to do it deep down on the inside. Maybe you've tried to get rid of a habit. Maybe you've tried to get rid of a mindset and it seems that it worked but deep down it only takes something bad enough to bring that junk back out of you, doesn't it? You think you've done good and then all of a sudden you get into a fight with such and such and bam. And then you leave that conversation and you go, I thought that was gone. Why? Because character modification on our own strength is limited. But what God can shift off of you is unlimited. And that is the true change. And where does that true change happen? In the environment of prayer. Who he is shapes what I am in prayer. Who he is shapes what I am in prayer or through prayer. So he, his name had meaning, but he refused to look at it. But what he did, if we look at the the content, the quality of his prayer, we see that he did several things to almost remind himself about who God is. And those are the three things that I want to look at. Three qualities, three things that in prayer brought big faith, and that big faith that he had brought a big outcome. The first quality or characteristic of God that he recognized in his prayer is that God is our provider. God is our provider. He starts out and he says, oh, that you would bless me. It's an interesting statement because in the Hebrew, it's very similar. It's actually the exact opposite of a curse that was pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. After the original sin happened, there were consequences that came out of that original sin. The pain in childbirth that his mom experienced was one of the consequences that God pronounced as coming out of the original sin. But when we look at it, there's language in Genesis 3. It says, you shall surely die, talking about the knowledge and talking about sin. This oath that you would bless me is almost a reversal of that. It is, I shall not surely die because of the curse, but God, you are the curse breaker. You are the one. You are the provider. You are the one who leads me into good, healthy places. Oh, that you would bless me because you are the only one who can change my story around. In Romans chapter 15, the apostle Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. He is our provider, but I'm not even even talking about just earthly, physical needs. He is our provider for all of those things. But do you know that God is the true source of joy? He is the true source of peace, not because it's something that he has to give to you. It's because it flows out of the complete nature of who he is. He is peace. He is love. And what he does is he gives of himself to us. And when we exist in relationship with us, he is our provider. He goes on to even say this, and enlarge my border. In a time period in history, borders were determined by war. In the springtime, kings would go out and they would go into battle. They would defend their territory and sometimes be able to actually expand their territory and take additional ground. And so what he's recognizing is he's saying, I'm not going to depend on any man to go out and to expand the space that I live on because I recognize that you are my source. You are my provider. You are the one that's going to give me favor with man. You are the one who is going to enable me to grow. He is our provider. The second characteristic that his prayer recognized is that he is our guide 
and our strength. He is our guide and our strength. He says that your hand might be with me when he's praying. Your hand might be with me. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on the scripture, he says, God's hand with us to lead us, protect us, strengthen us, and work all of our works in us and for us is a hand all sufficient for us. I don't know about you, but I've needed guidance in my life. Anybody? We've, we need help in this world, right? The biggest messes I made were the ones I tried to figure out on my own. It only took me 30-something years to figure out I should just ask people that know more. <laughs> right? And I look at it like, when, you know, when I'm interacting with my kids, you know, my son has no clue what's going to hurt him. And yet I need to be there to say, don't climb that. Don't go backwards off the couch. Don't stick that in a socket. Why? Because I know a little bit better and I need to guide him. But what am I doing? I'm coming alongside him so that the better part of him can come out of him, right? That's the whole point of discipleship. That's the whole point of transform groups. What? We exist in community with one another so that we can guide each other. But the beauty of that is because God's hand is on each and every single one of us. So when we're all existing in relationship, God is able to guide. But in relationship, in the environment of prayer, I find the Holy Spirit challenging me. I don't like to be challenged by God or anybody. <laughs> but when God brings something up, it's for our own good. And we're best to respond to it. In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 29, Jesus said this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I have to admit, when I was younger in my faith and I read this scripture, I was really confused about why he was talking about eggs. I was also bad at spelling. There we go, it clicked. I was like, yolk? Maybe it's sticky. That's why we use it to put breadcrumbs on chicken, right? So that's what, that was my thought process when I was younger. No, that word yolk in scripture is a piece of wood that goes in between two oxen. And what it does is it evenly distributes the load and the weight. It allows the oxen to walk step and step with one another. And when one turns, the other one turns in unison with it. What Jesus is saying is he's not saying, I'm going to make things super easy so you don't got to do anything. He's saying, while you try to do what I made you to do, I am your guide. I am your strength. You partner up with me. I share the load with you. But most importantly, I show you how fast to go, how slow to go, and which way to turn. He helps us avoid all of the problems. But it's in the environment of prayer that I recognize that because I could know it. I could know it in my head. But what has gone from my head to my heart is something that I live. And that is experienced in the atmosphere of prayer. So he's pointing himself and he's saying, I know that you're my provider. I know that you're my guide. I know that you're my strength. And the third thing that he recognizes while he's praying is that God is our protector. He says that you might keep me from harm. Psalm 91, Moses wrote while they were in the wilderness after they constructed the tabernacle. So Israel had been freed from the power of Egypt, had gone through the Red Sea, and were now in the wilderness. And they had constructed the tabernacle. It was called the Tent of Meeting. It was the place while they were roaming the desert where sacrifice could be made by the priests, and God's presence would literally come down, and he would interact with mankind. And God wrote, uh, Moses wrote Psalm 91, and this is God speaking. 
God says this, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. That is the character of the God that you and I believe in. He is one who fiercely protects what is his. In John chapter 6, Jesus is interacting and he says, he says, I am the bread of life. And he's talking about the fact that he is provision, that he is all sufficient. But then he says this in John 6 verse 39. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, God the Father in heaven, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you know that when you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins and grant you eternal life and to bless you while you are here on earth, you belong to nobody else. When you have given him the authority over your world, nothing on heaven or on earth could snatch you out of his hands. Jesus doesn't lose hold of what he holds on to, ever. But... How many of your trademarks and slogans and brands might feel like he has? The devil has done an awful good job of trying to make you feel like you belong to something else sometimes. Of allowing the external circumstances to brand you on the inside. We need a wake-up call sometimes on the inside. I don't belong to anybody else except Jesus. And when I can stand on that and know that he's my provider, know that he is my guide, he is my strength, but that he protects me. In the environment of prayer, that's where big faith comes. Now notice this. It leads him to say this. Jabez says, so that it might not bring me pain. We don't know the circumstances that he prayed this prayer. Like I said, Israel was coming back into the promised land. They were coming out of exile. We don't know what kind of problems they were encountering. The entire life of a man is recognized by one prayer in Scripture. And what does he do? He allows in the atmosphere of prayer his reflection on the goodness of God and all those characteristics that we talked about to lead him to say, you are my provider, you are my guide, my strength, and my protector, so that what? The name that had been put on me for my entire life would not limit what you could do through me. He shook off the labels that had been placed on him, the definition of who he was, and said, I won't allow that to be what I'm known by. And that big faith that came, well, how does it end? And God answered. And God did as he had requested. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. When we lean on our own understanding, we fall short. But when we remind ourselves of the goodness and the power and the strength and the character of the God that we know, then the things that I thought were important don't seem to be anymore. The morals that I thought were important in the world don't count anymore. The definitions that anyone has ever spoken about me, they get rewritten because I know the living God and I know what he can do. We talked before about Jacob, whose name was turned into Israel. When his youngest son was born, they were traveling and his wife, Rachel, was dying during childbirth. And so when the, his youngest son was born, his wife called him Ben-Onai, which means son of my pain. She was dying, she was perishing. So she named him after that moment. 
And yet Jacob, Israel, looked at that situation and he refused to allow his son to be named after a momentary problem. And he said, no, he will not be called Ben-Onai. He will be called Benjamin. Benjamin means at the right hand. Sorry, lefties, but the right hand in scripture is one that's associated with strength with relationship, with favor. Jacob would not allow his son to be defined by something negative, but to be defined by strength, by goodness. I'm here to tell you today that your father in heaven sees you the same exact way. He knows that you've been through pain. He knows that you've been through struggle, but he doesn't want you defined by that junk anymore. He wants you to look to him, the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who has saved you out of a mess of sin, the one who loves you. He wants you to look to him, to recognize who he is and see who you are in light of who he is. There's a pattern all throughout scripture. It's dark to light and death to life. You know, I said before that there's power in a name and that's true. But I want to end with this thought. There's power in the name. There's power in the name. I want to read to you something as I was studying that I thought was so good. But we haven't finished with Jabez until we see the contrast that his experience poses to that of another descendant of Judah many centuries later. This man's name means salvation, and he also prayed to his father to deliver him from the cup of pain and woe that was set in front of him. Curse was not the destination that this descendant of Judah had been born into. He was the king of kings, and he was the lord of lords, the one who certainly deserved to be honored above all of his brothers. But the Father, in His grace, declined to let the cup of pain and woe pass from Jesus. Christ had no evil for which He should experience pain, yet He was cut off for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He had no offspring, no earthly inheritance, no children, no house, and no possessions. But He is indeed now more honored than all of His brethren. He has a glorious eternal inheritance, brothers and sisters, whom he is not ashamed to call his people. That's you and that's me. His boundaries have been enlarged to bring in men and women into his kingdom from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And of his glory, there should be no end. So we should certainly pray like Jabez did, trusting God to, perform, to transform our native curse into a blessing. But we are to pray remembering God's promise to conform us to the life of Jesus, whose way to blessing runs through the path of suffering first and glory later. So often we're just trying to get to glory that we miss the whole process to get there. There is power in the name. At the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess and every knee will bow. There is nothing, no other name that is more powerful than him. What is your trademark? What is your slogan? What are the things that you are defined and known by? I want to encourage each and every single one of you here and those of you joining us online, when this is over today, get in your car and think about this and pray about it. Don't wait. Don't process it. Don't get to a point where you think you understand everything in three weeks and then decide to pray about this message. Do it today. Do it immediately. Talk to your family. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your children and your parents and your friends and involve them on this journey. Do this today. 
Remind yourself of who you are because of who he is. And watch the labels and the things that have branded you your entire life break today in the name of Jesus. But maybe there's some of you in here today that have never made the conscious decision to surrender the ownership of your life to him. To recognize that we were all born into this curse called sin and that there is nothing I can do on my own strength and my own power to deal with it. It is by believing and trusting in the completed work of Jesus on the cross that that bridge, that separation between us and God is covered. And if you're in this place or online and you've never made that decision today in a moment, I'm going to lead us through some prayer. So I'm going to ask everybody, actually, if you close your eyes and bow your heads with me today. This isn't the prayer that saves you. It's not the order or words that saves you, but it is the posture in your heart towards your Father in heaven who loves you, who desires to rewrite your destiny, your history for generations to come, who desires to break off labels and things that have been placed on you by other people and your own mistakes and wants to revive you, restore you, and rebuild you today. But it starts with recognizing that He is Lord. So if you want to do that in this place and you feel His presence about you, Pray this prayer with us. Say, Lord, Jesus, thank you. I believe that you lived a perfect life, that you died, and that you rose again. I believe that all my sin, every single one, has been atoned for, and that I am forgiven. Holy Spirit, Live in me, empower me, protect me, guide me, strengthen me, and provide for me every day of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. And with your eyes closed, if that was you in this place, could you just slip up your hand so I can see it right now? right now. I see that hand. I see your hand right there, ma'am. I see your hand, sir. Sir, in the back. Thank you. I see that hand over there. I see you over there on the left. I see you back there by the camera, my man. Thank you so much. I see you, sweetie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, because in this room and online, eternity changed right now. I thank you, Jesus, God, that the curse of sin is broken because of the work that you did on the cross. And I pray over every single person, God, that things, labels, brands, sayings, hurts, pains would be broken today in the name of Jesus. And that as people encounter you in prayer, as people encounter you by faith, God, that you would shift things off of people that are not meant to be there. That God, you would speak your promises over people. And that the things that you were predestined for them to walk in, they would. I pray, God, that destiny would be rewritten today. The generations would shift today in Jesus' name. And that above all, God, we would constantly look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who loves us, the one who died for us, the one who restores and rebuilds us every day, every moment, every second. God, bless your people today in Jesus' name.